MSW Media. Hello and welcome to the Daily Beans for Friday, July 29th, 2022. Today, the Department of Justice is prepping to go to court to get executive privilege claims thrown out so they can force people close to Trump to testify to the grand jury about him. An associate of Jeffrey Clark and John Eastman is cooperating with the Department of Justice. Senate Republicans vote against burn pit benefits for veterans after passing it last month. Pompeo and Mnuchin are in talks about testifying to the January 6th committee as they focus on the 25th Amendment talks after the insurrection. Democrats are now favored to win the Senate in the midterms for the first time. The January 6th committee has a formal path to share evidence with the Department of Justice and the attack on McMorrow has backfired in spectacular fashion. I'm your host, Allison Gill. Hi, everybody. Welcome. It's Friday. It's just me today. Everybody is uh, out and about doing things, but I wanted to definitely bring you some news. And I'm going to bring you this incredible interview later in the show with the host of the History Is Us podcast. His name is Dr. Eddie Glaude. You do not want to miss that. Uh, We do have a ton of news to get to as well as that interview and some good news at the end. So let's kick it off today. Let's hit the hot notes. Hot notes. All right. First up, Justice Department prosecutors are preparing to fight in court to force former White House officials to testify about then-President Donald Trump's conversations and actions around January 6th. That's according to people briefed on the matter. This is a big deal. This is a very proactive stance that the Department of Justice is taking. At issue are claims of executive privilege that prosecutors expect from the former president in order to shield some information from the federal grand jury as the criminal investigation moves deeper into the ranks of the White House and all, you know, all the White House officials who directly interacted with Trump. DOJ's preemptive move is the clearest sign yet that federal investigators are homing in on Trump's conduct as he tried to prevent the peaceful transfer, the lawful transfer of power to Joe Biden. An executive privilege court fight would immediately put the Justice Department's investigation into a more aggressive stance than even the Mueller investigation. As we know, it says here, a major years-long criminal probe into Trump Russia, who was not ultimately charged. Confronting the privilege issue reflects the care with which the Justice Department is taking as it faces the unusual situation of investigating a former president for actions taken while in office. And it could bring about one of the first major court fights over the separation of powers in the January 6th criminal investigation. Trump's attempt to maintain secrecy came up most recently in the federal grand jury testimony of Mark Short and Greg Jacob. Before their recent grand jury testimony, prosecutors, along with lawyers for Short and Jacob, outlined some questions they would avoid in order to steer clear of potential privilege issues with the expectation they could return to those questions at a later date. This was the plan. Neither would answer questions about direct interactions with Trump when they testified in the criminal investigation in recent weeks. Short, Pence's former chief of staff, and Jacob, his former chief counsel, both were present in that Oval Office meeting January 4th, where Trump pressured Pence to go along with a plan presented by attorney John Eastman to block the certification of the election results. Despite the privilege issues, the witnesses spent hours answering questions to the grand jury about the pressure campaign on Pence, which Trump was part of, while avoiding direct questions about the former president, 
according to people briefed on the matter. The questions prosecutors asked indicated that investigators are zeroing in on the role of Trump and others such as Eastman and uh, Trump lawyer, of course, Rudy Giuliani and others in the broader scheme to block the certification of the results and organize a set of fake electors who would keep Trump in office despite him losing the election and the fact that he knew he lost the election. So basically, what this means is DOJ is prepping their legal arguments to go to court to toss out executive privilege claims so people close to Trump can come back or come in and testify about his crimes, what he did and what he said. So for those arguing semantics about whether Donald is under investigation or not, whether there's a file with Trump's name on it, there's no denying this effort. I mean, unless you think (laughs) that they want to get answers about Trump so they can charge just Eastman. So interesting. And another big piece of news out of Department of Justice today, I told you this would be coming fast and furious, Ken Klukowski. He's that former DOJ official who was a direct report to Jeffrey Clark, the environmental lawyer who was told to go back to his office and call them when there was an oil spill. He also, Klukowski, has ties to John Eastman. Well, this guy is fully cooperating with the Department of Justice investigation, not the 1-6 committee, the Department of Justice. He is cooperating with the 1-6 committee, but cooperating with the Department of Justice. And we've learned that the DOJ executed a search warrant on his electronic materials a couple of weeks ago. A cooperator. We have not an official, you know, cooperation agreement signed, but he's cooperating. So him and Cassidy Hutchinson, Mark Short, Greg Jacob, just got to get that privilege bullshit thrown out. And by the way, the Justice Department is super likely, like 98% likely to win that challenge in court. It's just up to them to expedite it. We don't want this languishing in court for a year, which has been known to happen. Also, the House Select Committee investigating the January 6th attack is working to secure testimony from a growing number of officials in former Trump's cabinet. And that's according to sources familiar. Trump's former Treasury Secretary, Steve, that's Mnuchin, who reportedly discussed the possibility of invoking the 25th Amendment as a vehicle to remove Trump from office, along with then-Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, who recently sat with the committee investigators for a transcribed interview. ABC News previously reported Pompeo is expected to speak with the committee in the coming days, though his interview is not officially scheduled. Among the officials actively negotiating with the committee are the former Director of National Intelligence, Ratcliffe, and the former Acting Secretary for the Department of Homeland Security, Chad Wolf. That's according to sources familiar. Wolf would also be able to speak to Trump's desire to order the federal government to seize voting machines. Remember, he wanted the DOJ to do it. They wouldn't do it. He wanted the Department of Homeland Security to do it. They wouldn't do it. He wanted U.S. Marshals to do it. They wouldn't do it. He wanted the Department of Defense to do it. They wouldn't do it. Milley even said, we're not getting involved in elections. We're the military. Now, this engagement shows that even after the committee's round of dramatic public hearings, which ended last week, it continues to pursue additional evidence about what the administration's most senior officials knew about Trump's actions surrounding January 6th. Committee investigators are not only focused on the discussions surrounding the 25th Amendment that occurred within the cabinet, but also cabinet members' concern after the attack on the Capitol about Trump's decision-making, including his potential conversations with world leaders. Cassidy Hutchinson, as we know, testified that Ratcliffe, quote, didn't want much to do with the post-election period and felt there could be dangerous repercussions in terms of precedent set for elections for our democracy for the 6th. You know, he was hoping that we would concede. The committee has also expressed interest in speaking with other senior Trump officials like Robert O'Brien, the former national security advisor. 
another area of focus are cabinet officials who resigned in the wake of January 6th. We know Elaine Chow, Transportation Secretary, resigned, as well as former Education Secretary DeVos, Betsy DeVos. They will potentially join a growing list of officials who've already cooperated with the committee, including former Acting Attorney General Jeff Rosen, former Defense Secretary Chris Miller, former Labor Secretary Eugene Scalia, and former Attorney General Bill Barr also sat with the committee, as we know. Former White House counsel Patsy Baloney testified that Scalia wanted to convene a cabinet meeting on January 7th, 2021. Scalia told the committee he requested the meeting that morning because I thought that trying to work with the administration to study up the ship was likely to have greater value than simply resigning. In an audio clip released by the panel earlier this week, then-acting Defense Secretary Chris Miller told investigators there was no order from Trump to have 10,000 National Guard troops ready for deployment ahead of January 6th or on it. Miller was responding to a Mark Meadows interview with Fox News from February 2021, where he claimed that he was it was a given that Miller had told thousands of troops to be at the ready. And not only that, Miller and Cash Patel told Fox News, told Hannity. Yeah, man. Oh, I testified under oath to the January 6th committee that Trump totally ordered those troops. That's not what he testified to. And the January 6th Select Committee has formalized a path to share witness transcripts and evidence with the Department of Justice. That is according to the chair of that committee, Benny Thompson. Quote, we put a template together for sharing information, sharing it with justice. My understanding is there's a general agreement on it. Agreement on the evidence sharing would mark a significant milestone as the DOJ inquiry into efforts by Trump and others to overturn the election enters a more public-facing phase. Federal investigators have sought to access the Congressional Committee's 1,000-plus witness interview transcripts since April but the select panel has resisted as its probe continued to generate extraordinary new evidence and new witness testimony. Now, though, as DOJ delves even more deeply into the former president's inner circle and the select committee's most significant round of public hearings has concluded, there appears to be a greater urgency for prosecutors to obtain evidence the select committee has gathered. And again, it's not because the DOJ doesn't feel like doing the job. They have to compare those. Joyce Vance said on TV today what I've been saying this whole time. And she's also, to her credit, been saying it, as well as Barb McQuaid and and many others. And many others, it's tremendous. People are saying that, you know, you have to have all of the different testimonies so that you can make sure there's not inconsistency so that your witnesses can't be impeached at trial. Now, in a wide-ranging interview, Thompson, Benny Thompson, said the select committee is entering an intense period of closed-door work to handle housekeeping matters such as how to handle the five GOP members of Congress the panel subpoenaed, but who have refused to comply. He says the panel is still mulling decisions about whether to formally request testimony from Trump and Pence. Thompson also said he anticipates an August release of a National Guard-focused report detailing the security flaws that contributed to the violence in the Capitol. Thompson had previously floated the prospect of sharing evidence with the DOJ in camera, meaning in private, in a skiff, would require department investigators to visit the select committee offices and review transcripts without getting to keep them. But Thompson said Thursday that the new template is unlikely to include in-camera review because it created unworkable complexities. Instead, he said, DOJ would have to provide details about the information it's interested in, and the select committee will supply it. He added, DOJ is aware of the identities of the witnesses who have testified to the select panel. They have the list, and they can use that knowledge to request specific transcripts. Thompson has previously suggested that the department has expressed a particular interest in evidence related to the fake electors scheme. Thompson reiterated that the committee ultimately intends to make the bulk of its information public. All of this is produced for the most part by taxpayer dollars. At some point, the whole world will have access to it. 
He also expressed an awareness of some tricky calculus for DOJ once it begins obtaining select committee materials. Prosecutors are obligated by law to share evidence with defendants that may bear on their cases. It's a process known as discovery. And if you don't, and you hold back something exculpatory, that's a Brady violation. I talked about that a lot, too, when I talked about getting these transcripts. And for the first time, political polling website 538 shows the Democrats with an edge in the race for the U.S. Senate in November. The website late on Tuesday showed the Democrats had a 52% chance of keeping the Senate majority while the Republicans had a 48% chance. There has been consensus for a long time Republicans would win back the Senate this fall, buoyed by high inflation and economic downturn under Democrat Biden's presidency, but also really buoyed by history. That's just how it goes. It's the economy, and the incumbent usually loses seats. 538 believes the Republicans have selected some weak candidates in some key races, meaning they're less likely to take the upper chamber than previously predicted. That's the influence of Trump. The website's Senate forecast has changed since it began polling in early June. Back then, the Democrats were only predicted to have a 40% chance to keep the Senate, and Republicans had a 60% chance of taking it. Since then, the Democrats have grown in popularity, and now, for the first time, have overtaken the Republicans and are on course to keep and hold the Senate. Senate elections will be held November 8th, with 35 of the Senate seats being contested in regular elections, and the winners will serve six-year terms from January 3rd, 2023. And of the 35 seats, 21 are Republican-held and 14 are Democratic-held. The Democrats currently have a wafer-thin majority in the Senate. Uh, They only have, you know, 48 seats, two independents, and a tie-breaking vote from Kamala Harris, vice president. Republicans have 50 seats. 538 believes several states will change party control in November, including Republican-controlled Pennsylvania, where it predicts Democratic Senate candidate John Fetterman will win around 49.1% of the vote against Oz, who should get about 47.8%. That's their prediction. Should be a much bigger margin than that. The race for Republican-held North Carolina is likely to be close, with Ted Budd, Republican, forecasted getting 50.2% against Democrat Sherry Beasley's 46.1%. Warnock in Georgia is predicted to be a knife-edge vote. The incumbent is forecasted to lose, with 49% of the vote against Republican candidate Herschel Walker, who's who's predicted to get 49.6%. I thought when they said that they're putting up bad candidates for Republicans, I thought for sure they meant Herschel Walker, but they're predicting... He wins. Democratic-controlled Arizona is expected to be close, with incumbent Democratic Senator Mark Kelly should be winning with 49.8 against Republican Blake Masters, who should get 47.5. These are all razor thin. They shouldn't be. And Senate Republicans on Wednesday, here's one of the reasons they shouldn't be. They blocked a bill to help veterans exposed to toxic burn pits uh, get, get health care. That initially sailed through the Senate with 84 votes. And this angered Democrats and veterans groups and me and John Stewart, who is a leading proponent to aid the community. Senator John Tester, chairman of the Senate Veterans Affairs Committee, was particularly incensed. Tester, House Speaker Pelosi, other lawmakers and Stewart on Thursday joined veterans outside the Capitol who originally came to Washington to see the bill pass. They were all out front to assail the Republicans. Democrats accused them of voting against the bill in retaliation for a deal announced earlier by Chuck Schumer and Manchin that will allow Democrats to move ahead on an economic health care and climate package without Republican votes. That's budget reconciliation. A version of the legislation was approved by the Senate. This we're talking about the 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 burn pit bill again. It, it won 84 to 14 in June. It was back in the Senate on Wednesday because the House made modest changes before passing it 342 to 88. About two weeks ago. 
question now is, can the bill make it to Biden's desk? And if it does, when? After the news conference Thursday, veterans, advocates and families moved quickly, showing up at the offices of each Republican who voted to block the legislation and demanding meetings with the senators and their staffs. Tom Porter, executive vice president for government relations at IAVA, predicted that despite the GOP's concern about cost, the senators will bow to the political reality that nobody is going to slap you around for spending money on sick veterans. Quote, we're going to win this, but it just isn't going to be as pretty as we had hoped. That's what he said. Late Thursday, Schumer said the Senate would try again on Monday to advance the bill. And now, time for a little schadenfreude. Schadenfreude. The numbers are in, and it's official. The attack on Democratic Michigan State Senator Mallory McMorrow backfired. The Michigan Republican state senator, who falsely described McMorrow as a groomer in an April fundraising email, raised less than $300 in the days following the solicitation, according to campaign finance filings. McMorrow, on the other hand, raised more than a million dollars. 300 bucks to a million dollars. In the fundraising email, Michigan State Senator Lana Thies of Brighton said colleagues like McMorrow were outraged that they couldn't groom and sexualize kindergartners. That charge prompted McMorrow to make her spirited speech in the Senate in her own defense, a speech that went viral and made her a political celebrity on the left. Thies didn't see an influx of small-dollar donations from the solicitation. Her take from individual donors was just $235. But McMorrow used the response to her speech to build a database of 11,000 donors from all 50 states. All right, everybody. We'll be right back with Dr. Eddie Glaude to talk about his new podcast, History Is Us. You don't want to miss it. Stick around. After these messages, we'll be right back. Hey, everybody. It's AG. As you know, I used to have a lot of trouble falling asleep and staying asleep. I wake up sore and groggy and cranky. But then Helix Sleep came to my rescue, and all my sleeping woes have been solved. See, Helix has an online sleep quiz that takes just two minutes to complete, and it matches your body type and sleep preferences to the perfect mattress for you. Why would you buy a mattress made for someone else? With Helix, you're getting a mattress that you know will be perfect for the way you sleep. Everyone is unique. Helix knows that. So they have several different mattress models to choose from. They have soft, medium, firm mattresses that cool you down if you sleep hot. They even have a Helix Plus mattress for plus-size sleepers. When I took the Helix quiz, I was matched with the Helix Midnight because I prefer a medium firm mattress and I sleep on my side. So head to helixsleep.com slash dailybeans, take their two-minute sleep quiz, order your customized mattress, and start having the best sleep of your life. There's free shipping, a 10-year warranty, and Helix even has financing options available, so a good night's sleep is never far away. Helix was awarded number one best overall mattress pick of 2020 by both GQ and Wired magazines, and Helix has been recommended by multiple leading chiropractors for improving your sleep. Helix is offering up to $200 off all mattress orders right now and two free pillows for listeners at helixsleep.com slash dailybeans. That's helixsleep, H-E-L-I-X, sleep.com slash dailybeans. Everybody, welcome back. Joining me today is the chair of the Department of African American Studies at Princeton University, New York Times bestselling author and host of the new six-part podcast series, History Is Us. Please welcome Dr. Eddie Glaude. Sir, thank you for speaking with me today. It is my pleasure. And I love that us is capitalized because I could feel like I can take that history is U.S., history is us. So <laughs> I noticed, I noticed what you did. I see what you did there. Thank you. I want to ask you, this is such an important series for people to listen to. What prompted you to create this six-part series? You know, to be honest, first of all, it's such a delight to be in conversation with you and on your podcast. Um, you do so much, such important work and have such great conversations. So it's just an honor and a delight. Yeah, oh, thank you. 
you know, it was really it was really hearing Senator Ted Cruz right after the January 6th insurrection invoke, you know, the presidential election of 1876, mm. you know, and actually invoking the compromise of 1877, which signaled the end of radical reconstruction, which was the context for the, you know, the passage of the Electoral Count Act, right? But to invoke that framework, right? Or to invoke that historical moment as a framework for the so-called controversy around the 2020 election. I was like, history is haunting us here. Mm. And, you know, to juxtapose that invocation with this, you know, the presence of the Confederate flag in the people's house, uh, what was underneath the Stop the Steel chant, uh, that, you know, it was Atlanta, it was Philadelphia, it was Detroit, it was Milwaukee, right? That, that you know, it was particular voters uh, whose votes didn't matter or, or shouldn't be counted. And so I'd always felt that we were in a moment that echoed the collapse of Reconstruction, a moment in which we were turning our backs in real time on the possibility of us, of the country being a truly multiracial democracy. And so I wanted to tell a story hmm. about how history informs Ted Cruz's invocation. And so the series begins with the insurrection, begins with Cruz's invocation, and then takes us back to radical reconstruction. And then we move forward uh, to arrive back at January 6th again. So yeah, that was the motivation because, you know, history is, I'm, all, I'm, I'm obsessed with it, particularly in a, in a history dodging civilization like our own. Mm. And I thought it was important to invoke it mm. as a way of framing the choices in front of us today. Yeah. Yeah. And I want to explore that a little bit more because what I love about this series that you did is it presents a more curated history and it addresses mm. how those events fit into the larger picture. And I want to talk more about some of these through lines that that go all the way back to the end. You know, I mean, the shutdown of Reconstruction and the loopholes in the Reconstruction Amendment in amendments that have allowed SCOTUS to exploit these loopholes throughout history and, and kind of cause this continuous backslide into the idea of white supremacy. That had presented itself in January 6th when, you know, we did we've seen studies where these are middle-aged white men, mostly, uh, for a lot of military and police background and veteran backgrounds, mm -hmm. uh, who live in maybe swing cities, not deep rural red places, who who fear what, you know, this, this uh, phenomenon of the Great Replacement, which goes all the way back to the beginning of why they left those loopholes in the Reconstruction Amendments in the first place. And, and so, I absolutely love that this is this is curated history as opposed to my favorite history teacher in high school, Mr. Peralta. He didn't just say, you know, you, if you want to do past history, you can memorize dates and events. Mm -hmm. But what's important is that you understand how those events fit into the rest of what's going on at the time and how they sort of inform everything that comes after them. So I feel like that was intentional. To, to sort of curate these historical events. I love that verb, curation. You know, every, I'm a professor and every syllabus is a cur curation, right? You kind of curate these encounters. History is more than the dispassionate detailing of facts. History is not just a, a chronicle, right? History involves plot. 
It has characters. It, there's an arc. And for me, history is always relevant to, to, to now. There's always a, a present in search of an account for itself. Right? Always a present in need of an, an account. And so there's a presentist preoccupation. What if I told you the story in this way? Would it help you see this moment differently? Would it present you with different sets of choices if you understood January 6th, if you understood the attack on voting rights, if you understood the attack on, on Roe v. Wade, on women's rights, on LGBTQ plus communities, if you understood it in light of a series of previous choices. And so the, the idea is to give us a kind of thick, give the listener a thick historicist sensibility, right? And when I say historicist, I mean, we want to contextualize our current moment. We want to pluralize, that is to give us a variety of angles. So that contextualization is really important, really important. And so it is a curation because there's a problem I'm trying to understand. And that problem guides my return to the archive. Because if you just jump into the archive outs, if you just if you don't have a question, you're going to get lost mm -hmm. because the archive is infinite. Mm. There has to be something that guides your eyes. And it's 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 that and that curatorial effort uh, in the podcast is to say, okay, now what if I get the listener to think about the collapse of radical reconstruction? You if you wrap your mind around it, you have a region in in, in the United States, and we don't want to, to demonize the South, but let's just talk about it in the context of the Civil War really quickly, that engages in all-out all rebellion in defense of slavery. And they leave 600,000 bodies on the battlefield, dead. Those are just the ones who are counted for. But in 12 years, from the end of the Civil War, to the Compromise of 1877, in 12 years, the country betrays those bodies sacrificed. So by 1877, radical reconstruction is over the South, invited back in. Think about 1896, 31 years. 1896, Plessy versus Ferguson, makes segregation the law of the land. By 1912, Woodrow Wilson is elected president of the United States. And between the end of the 19th century and the turn of the 20th century, you know, the South basically controls every major committee in Congress, from Ways and Means to Foreign Relations, right? And so you have to ask yourself, who won the Civil War? And so you'd have to tell that story in order to, for me at least, in order to account for where we currently are in this moment of betrayal. Yeah, and you just reminded me of... Um... I had just read Elie Mastal's book, Allow Me to Retort, where he, he discusses the law and the Constitution throughout, throughout the ages. And he, he says that this SCOTUS today is closer to the Plessy court than it is to the loving v. Virginia court. They just have the Federalist Society just gives them better terms to hide their bigotry. And that contextualization it bears itself out. You mentioned Roe v. Wade with the concept of privacy, because that disassembles any ruling that has to do with privacy, including loving. And 
I find it so important that we contextualize it in that way, because if you just talk about overturning Roe and banning abortion or abortion, leaving it up to the states, and you don't kind of understand that the entire constitution will fall apart without the concept of privacy, everything that it, it it was just sort of assumed, right? Like, how how does any of this work without the concept of privacy? And that's the kind of context that that uh, that this series sort of puts these these issues and events in. And that's uh, that's one of the I think one of the great successes that that you've had. Thank you. And I want to talk about this amazing slate of guests <laughs> before I let you go, because it, it talk about some of the guests that you have on this podcast. Which is truly incredible. Well, you know, we wanted some of the best historians in the country. So, you know, from David Blight and. Barbara Ramsby and Martha Jones and, you know, Doug Egerton, some of the best cultural critics, Imani Perry, Kianga Yamada-Taylor, some of the best activists, you know, so, so uh, Latasha Brown, and of course, the secretary of the Smithsonian, Lonnie Bunch, Senator Cory Booker. So there's this, it's a wonderful group of folks, many of them are friends, I should, I should admit. <laughs> That's okay. Uh, <laughs> You, you, you keep good company, bring them on in, you know, and, and I, when you talk about Cory Booker, like one of my favorite quotes, it comes from Senator Booker, which is, if America hasn't broken your heart, you don't love her enough. You exactly. Know. Exactly. Uh, and, you know, and, and David Blight, you know, has been writing and Doug Egerton, particularly, they mm -hmm. come to mind because they've been writing about uh, Reconstruction. Matt Lassiter has been writing about conservatism in the South. We can go on and on. They just had some wonderful folks. And, and I think part of what I was trying to do was not to, to, to find, you know, hard ideological voices, but rather people who, who studied, who write about the period under consideration, you know? And I think the result was, to my mind, a, a very balanced and thoughtful set of conversations. You know, that moment when Doug Egerton declares that Reconstruction didn't die, it was killed. Mm. Right? Mm -hmm. And then to, to talk about the attack on poll workers and that, you know, 53,000 Black people died, you know, between this date and the other. You know, I mean, it was just this extraordinary moment. And so we wanted to, to find folk who, who were thinking carefully about the American project, thinking carefully about our self-understanding, and who understood the role and place of history in it all, in all of it, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, no, it does. It does. And then I knew as you say that with poll workers, I'm reminded of the the very moving testimony from Shea Moss and, and her mother Ruby Freeman during these recent January 6th hearings. Just uh, truly incredible. And it sh again, shows those through lines that, that exist throughout history. So I, um, I have homework for listeners. Uh, everybody must, uh, the listening to this must listen, not only listen to the series, but share it with, uh, with others and your family and your friends, because without knowing this history and how it informs the current body politic, we are doomed to repeat it, uh, not just repeat it, but maintain it. Because that's what it is. It's a maintenance. It's not a repetition. Absolutely. You know, I think we're, we're confronted with a choice. We always are. We always have been. 
And the choice is rooted in who will we, who are we going to be as a nation? You know, Joe Crispino, who's this wonderful historian on, on the podcast who talked about, you know, the emergence of Governor Patterson uh, in Alabama, said every time we're in a moment of betrayal, these, these particular characters emerge who would otherwise not be taken seriously at all. So here we are in this moment of betrayal. And the question we have to ask ourselves is, will we finally be a multiracial democracy? Or will we continue to believe that this country belongs to certain people who must be valued more than others because of the color of their skin? That's the choice before us. And if we're going to make an informed choice, history must be present. Because as to, to paraphrase Mark Twain, as I do throughout the, uh, throughout the podcast, History might not repeat itself, but it damn sure rhymes. Yeah, so, so true. So everyone, you can find this series wherever you get your podcasts, the Audacity app as well. And uh, could you let everyone know where they can find and follow you so that they can keep up and keep current with the work that you're doing? Oh, thank you. So they can obviously find me on, on, on Princeton's website at African American Studies. They can follow me on Twitter at ESGlaude. Or they can, uh, you know, follow me on Instagram. Same thing. You know, I have I'm on all social media platforms. And I should say, Allison, that the, the producers at uh, Audacity at Cadence 13 and John Meacham, they were just simply amazing. So, you know, we always want to get a shout, give a shout out to the invisible labor, the people that make your work possible. And so there were just some amazing folks who played an extraordinary role in, in, in bringing this to the public. So I want to thank them, too. I'm here, here. Thank you so much. Everyone, the the six-part series is called History Is Us, wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you so much for joining me today, Dr. Eddie Glaude. I appreciate you. You take care. Everybody stick around. We'll be right back with the good news. Hey, everyone. It's AG from Muller She Wrote and The Daily Beans. It's Mariah from How We Win. It's Stephanie Miller from The Stephanie Miller Show. Steve Pearson from The How We Win Podcast. Hi, it's Brett Micellis from The Midas Touch Podcast, and we are joining forces to support The How We Win Fund. The midterms are coming, and the best way that we can fight back against the Republicans is to support Democrats in key battleground races. Our democracy is under attack, but we don't agonize. We, we organize. organize. Together, we can protect and expand our Democratic majority this November. Join the MSW Media Family of Podcasts and support the races that need us most by donating to Swing Left's National Impact Fund. It takes the guesswork out of where you'll have the most impact and 100% of the donations go directly to our most important races. So go to swingleft.org slash fundraise slash how we win. Donate what you can, share this with your friends and family. And let's show the GOP that the grassroots persistence is here to stay. This This is How We Win. Everybody, welcome back. It's time for the good news. Who likes good news, everyone? Then good news, everyone. Good news, good news. And if you have any good news, corrections, confessions, uh, misheard song lyrics, Halloween photos, Photos of your happy place, pet tax. If you don't have a pet, you can send in an adoptable pet in your area. Things you're crafting. If you have a small business, let us know. Anything, send it to us at dailybeanspod.com. Click on contact. First up from Sarah, pronouns she and her. Good news. I just got tickets to see The Beans, Frangela, How We Win, and Kathy Griffin live in Los Angeles. 
extra good news. The ticket is actually a donation to a midterm fund that helps candidates like John Fetterman. I like to think that my donation is being used to help pay for an ad that helps sink the wizard of fraud, Dr. Oz. Please enjoy my photogenic peanut and monster. Oh, look it. Oh, my cuties. Hello, beautiful babies. These are beautiful gray tabbies. And this one looks like it's got a little orange in it. So beautiful. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Next up from Cassie, pronoun she and her. This is a combination shit kids say and misheard song lyrics, courtesy of my youngest who turns three in October. Okay, this is going to be good. In addition to the traditional toddler word mix-ups, bother waddle for water bottle, dumble eggs for scrambled eggs, she has a tendency to add a P to the end of some words, like sure becomes sherp. But recently during bedtime, she has started singing You Are My Sunshine with me, and her version goes, You make me happy when skies are grape. <laughs> Bonus kid-related good news. After an excruciating two and a half years, my toddlers are vaccinated. They handled it like champs, and uh, the weight that is lifted off my shoulders is incredible. I can't imagine Cassie. Attached her a photo of them in the back seat with shameless Starbucks bribes, vanilla steamed milk, and cake pops. Mm. And my favorite photo of my eldest, which you might remember from a couple years ago. With all the news recently, I'm starting to think this face is strongly hereditary. <laughs> Thanks for standing between me and my mental health and the fire hose of news every day. You are my favorite way to stay informed without getting sucked into the black hole that is the daily news. Look at these babies. Look at that hair. That's fantastic hair. Oh, I remember that face. Yes, I certainly do. <laughs> yeah, I've been making that face since 1974, my friend. All right, next up from Jackie, pronouns she and her. I want to share some good news with you through the cesspool that is the regular news. Seven years ago, our youngest son was diagnosed with stage four neuroblastoma, a very aggressive cancer of the nerve endings with a 50% survival rate beyond five years. Our daycare provider took the first picture when his symptoms started, a very clear line of redness and sweating on his face. That was June 9th, and he began a very intense 18-month treatment plan that resulted in kidney and thyroid damage and over 200 days inpatient for treatments and complications. 200 days. The second picture shows his spaceship of IV pumps connecting him through a double lumen port. He was in the middle of intense chemotherapy for stem cell transplant in order to rid any cancer from his bone marrow. The final picture is of him and me. Today, he turns 10, a birthday we weren't sure we were going to ever see. He's happy, healthy, rising fifth grader whose constant smile just fills anyone who sees it with joy. We are grateful to the teams at Dana-Farber, Jimmy Fund Clinic, and Boston Children's Hospital for saving his life. Thank you for all you do. Oh, yeah, look. Oh. In the hospital. And there he is, 10 years old. High five, little man. That's amazing. Thank you for sending that in. From Josh T., pronouns he and him. Dear A.G., just know that my thoughts are with you. Few things hurt like losing a family member. Oh. And few things are as precious as our pets. I would share with you one of the first and last pictures I have of my old girl, Kayla, who I raised from a kitten and who passed just last year. They never stop bringing us joy, even after they pass. This is a beautiful cat. Josh, I, I, I wasn't sure I was going to talk about it, but um, patrons of this show will know if you've been if you've been listening for at least three years. You will know that one of my pod pets, 
uh, boobs, Bubica, um, about, I guess it was a little over three years ago, had a giant tumor. And almost overnight, all the patrons and people who listen to the podcast sent in a buck or two to help me pay for that excision. That was the, a little over three years ago. And he came home. I mean, he had a giant scar from, from stem to stern and on his belly, and they had to remove part of his body wall. But they got it all, and I had him for another three years. But a couple months ago, he was diagnosed with what turned out to be large cell lymphoma. Uh, he had numerous growths in his belly, and his um, GI lymph nodes were were big, too big, swollen. And so he lost a lot of weight and um, was going downhill pretty fast. I was able to put him on some anti-nausea meds, and he ate for about another week, but then he just stopped. And so yesterday, I had a pause of grace come to my home, and we... Um, we euthanized him and he went very peacefully and his brother, Bruce Willis was there and he made biscuits on him and um, was, it was just, it was beautiful, but it's also very sad. And so uh, why am I telling you this in the good news? It's because I think it's important for people who've gone through this to know that you're not alone and how much it hurts, right? And also to recommend home euthanasia if you can, if you're able. It's truly um, a blessing for us, for me and, and boobs and Bruce. That's my family. And uh, my friends came over later and we celebrated his little life. Um, and it was just, it was truly a, a, a very meaningful experience. And so uh, I thank you for sharing this and anyone out there who's gone through this. I know, I know I see you. And if you're going through it, I see, I, I had to change the appointment. I had the appointment for Saturday for, for tomorrow. Um, but that morning it was just, it was time. And so many people said, you'll know, you'll know when it's time. And I was like, I've never gone through this. So I'm like, is that it? Is this, is that, I, I, you know, but I wasn't sure. And so I said, well, if I'm not sure. Then, then I'm, I don't know. And then yesterday I knew he was just, um, this wasn't the same cat. Wasn't eating, couldn't get out of bed. Wouldn't even walk down his little stairs. So he went peacefully in his favorite spot with me and uh, he was purring and happy and at peace. So thank you for sending that in. Okay, we need more good news now. From Trey, pronouns he and him, dear AG and DG. I wanted to write in and tell you both how thankful I am to have stumbled across the Daily Beans last year. It has become part of my morning ritual and a potent way of defending against the stresses life brings. The constant barrage of attacks against women, LGBTQ plus people, people of color, and anyone the far right deems as woke or less valuable has enraged me. Listening to your podcast has really helped me to offset some of those darker emotions. That brings me to my good news. In December of 2020, I met a guy who literally upended my life. At the time, I was living in a very dark place. I had completely written off any possibility of being in a happy relationship. I hated my job. My financial life was a disaster. Little did I know what the future had in store. Last weekend, this guy and I celebrated our official one-year anniversary in New York. With nearly 8 billion people living on this planet, the two of us somehow managed to stumble across each other. Over the course of the last 19 months, I found a better job, cleaned up my finances, bought a house, 
and I've had the greatest pleasure of fostering the most loving and honest relationship I've ever been in. I found a partner in crime, someone who compliments me as much as I compliment him. We talk a lot about the future and what it's going to look like, but we aren't naive to the fact that we're going to have to use our voices and fight. I grew up in West Virginia, so I didn't understand the power one vote has until I moved to the purple state I now reside in. Hint, we love cheese. We have a senator who tried to hand deliver fake electors to the vice president. All right, that's your mansion in Wisconsin. I get it. It can be as simple as helping a friend or a sibling register to vote. But we want to encourage your listeners to keep on spreading the word on why we must vote blue. Our civil liberties are on the line. And that one vote can make all the difference. We'll be right by your side. So please keep fighting the good fight. Thank you for all you do for our democracy because it doesn't go unnoticed. I'm including some pictures from our anniversary celebration for your enjoyment. Thank you. And you're so right about one vote making all the difference. There are people out there spending billions in dark money to try to convince people that their vote doesn't matter. It doesn't count. Both sides are the same. The duopoly, the shit libs, blue MAGA. And um, that's, that's an op to get you to not vote. That is a form of voter suppression. It's disinformation. It's disingenuous. Just like third parties, which I think Andrew Yang is just now putting together, even though they have no platform. Their only platform is to take dark money from foreign interests and the Republicans so that they can siphon votes off of Democrats. They've found a way to make money. It's for the bad guys. They've sold their souls. Don't ever vote third party. Until we have a viable third like system that where third party gets you a parliamentary percentage in, in Congress or something, it's it's an op paid for by the Republicans. I, it blows my mind that people can't see this. At least now. I mean, maybe maybe early on, if you voted for Nader or, or whatever, you might, you might be like, oh, that was new. But after that Johnson guy who siphoned votes off Hillary enough to flip those three states, she lost by 80,000 votes or so. Uh, money pouring in from Russia to, to third party candidates and, and other Democrats running against the leading Democrat to tear down the leading Democrat so that they don't get as many votes. It's all voter suppression. It's the same kind of voter suppression that you would see if somebody was physically trying to beat you up at the poll to keep you from voting. So... But I'm, I'm preaching to the choir. Oh, sorry, I'm just a little bit. Um, I'm, I'm not on my full game um, because of my, you know, the, the the big change. I lost a member of my pack yesterday, so I'm dealing with it. And thank you all so much for your kind words. I've had so many people reach out to do paintings and memorials, and um, I just, you guys are incredible. Your support's incredible. You all, because of your generous donations, got me three and a half more years with him that I wouldn't have otherwise had. And I, I knew I was, I was on bonus time. So I appreciate all your support. And thanks for letting Pete Strzok sit in this week. What an incredible co-host. I'm going to try to bribe him to get him to come back next week for a couple of days. But everybody, uh, I hope you have a wonderful weekend. And... Um, I have a, an incredible group, a support group of, of good friends and good people that I will be seeing this weekend. And so I, I'll be okay. I don't want you to worry about me, but I do appreciate all of your kind words. I'll be back Monday with the beans. Until then, please take care of yourselves. Take care of each other. Take care of the planet. Take care of your mental health and vote blue over Q. I've been AG and them's the beans. 
The Daily Beans is written and executive produced by Allison Gill, with additional research and reporting by Dana Goldberg and Amy Carrero. Sound design and editing is by Desiree McFarlane, with art and web design by Joel Reeder with Moxie Design Studios. Music for The Daily Beans is written and performed by They Might Be Giants, and the show is a proud member of the MSW Media Network, a collection of creator-owned podcasts dedicated to news, politics, and justice. For more information, please visit mswmedia.com. MSW Media. <laughs>